0: The former president, Donald Trump, found liable for battery, sexually abusing E. Jean Carroll is what the jury found, and for defamation, damages totaling nearly $5 million in this case. And as we just heard, of course, there is going to be an appeal. Of course, this is going to be tied up for some time. But this is a victory today for her.
1: Well, maybe a little bit of a victory for everyone at this point. We'll take what we can get.
0: I don't know why I came here tonight That's why I got the
1: feeling there's something right I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs
0: Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you
1: Oh, hey, here I am From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. As heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the beautiful Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, and Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow, says me from BradBlog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. For another confusing episode of the broadcast,
0: another action-packed news day.
1: Confusing to me, in any event. Uh, he, you know, he has—he's got a way of screwing up my show, <laughs> uh, or at least my best-laid plans for my show, uh, just day after day. And apparently, he's done it again today. So we may—we may have to make some changes, Desi Doyen, and some truncations. On the fly here today. Yeah,
0: but at least it's for somewhat good news.
1: Uh, Breaking shortly before airtime this afternoon, after less than just three hours of deliberation, a jury in Manhattan on Tuesday, as you heard at the top of the show, found former President Donald J. Trump liable for the sexual abuse of magazine writer E. Jean Carroll. The federal jury of six men and three women also held Trump liable for defaming Carol when he posted a statement on his Truth Social website in October calling her case, quote, a complete con job and, quote, a hoax and a lie. Although more than a dozen women have accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct over the years, Carol's case is the first claim to be tested, successfully so, before an actual jury. The jury determined that Carol had, in fact, proven Trump sexually abused her during an assault in the dressing room of a New York department store back in the 1990s. But they rejected the accusi- accusation that, he, that she had been raped by him. Basically, the jury was able to choose between rape, sexual abuse, and unwanted touching in their, uh, in their uh, verdict here. And they chose the middle ground in a case that happened some 30 years ago. Sexual abuse is defined in New York as subjecting someone to sexual contact without their consent which is what the jury found, as opposed to rape, which is defined as sexual intercourse without consent. The jury awarded the 79-year-old Ms. Carroll a total of $5 million in damages, about $2 million regarding the sexual abuse, and about $3 million related to defamation. It was a unanimous verdict uh, that came in federal district court in lower Manhattan. Its findings are civil, not criminal. So Donald Trump has not been convicted of a crime here. So to that end, he faces no prison time. He's not guilty of sexual abuse per se, but has been found liable for it, as I understand the distinction in a civil case versus a criminal verdict the jury also found that carol proved by a preponderance of the evidence that carol was injured as a result of trump's publication of his denial of her accusations on his dumb truth social media account in october of 2022 he continued that denial today the do- the, the, the the denial which he has found liable for 3 million dollars for he continued it today after declining to testify In this trial and lying to his followers about that, as the jury was out, Trump posted falsely on his website, quote, waiting for a jury decision on a false accusation where I, despite being a current political candidate and leading all others in both parties, am not allowed to speak or defend myself. (laughs) Now, that is just an outright lie. In fact, the judge in this case took extraordinary measures even after his legal team had rested their case after they put on no defense at all, called no witnesses, including did not call Donald Trump in response to uh, Carroll's case, which had a lot of witnesses. The uh, The judge took extraordinary measures to allow Trump himself to come in for almost two days after the defense had rested.
0: That's really unprecedented. If
1: he wanted to come in and testify, yeah, apparently nobody's ever heard of someone, you know, resting their case and then bringing another witness in after that. Uh, in any event, Trump did not come in. He had the chance. He did not come in. And, and he lied about so it. So he lied about it. And on Tuesday, he claimed he was, quote, not allowed to speak or defend myself, going on to say that he, quote, will appeal the unconstitutional silencing of me as a candidate, no matter the outcome. Following the verdict, Carol left the courthouse uh, smiling Uh, holding hands with her attorneys, though she did not make a comment to the media. Trump, on the other hand, in all caps at his dumb website, uh, posted, quote, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. I don't know if he can be sued a second time for the same thing, but He continues, Uh, for the record, after years of uh, Trump claiming that he would never have raped Carol because she wasn't his type. As if, you know, she had been his type, well, then he would have raped her, I guess. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) during the trial, uh, Carol's team played part of Trump's deposition in this case. No, he wasn't silenced. He had to sit for a deposition. He did not have to show up as a witness in the case. He chose not to. But in his uh, deposition in the case, the uh, attorneys for um, E. Jean Carroll had asked Trump to identify a woman in a photo that was seen talking to Donald Trump. Trump identified that woman as his former wife, Marla Maples. Turns out that was not Marla Maples. That was actually E. Jean Carroll. Other than that, right, she's not his type. The uh, jury determined that uh, Ms. Carroll had, in fact, proved by a clear and, uh, and convincing evidence that Trump knew his statement was false when he said that her accusation was a hoax, a legal standard known as actual malice. He now owes her $5 million. Of course, that uh, that uh, uh, case can be appealed, and I'm sure it will be. But for now, uh, good news—at least some accountability out of courtroom in New York.
0: Yeah, and when he does those appeals, I hope that people remind everybody that Trump literally admitted on tape that he sexually assaults women. He did. Yes, he did. Oh, on the uh, Access, Access Hollywood, Hollywood tape, tape.
1: Yeah, which also came into the uh, uh, into this trial. Yep, it was played by uh, Carol's uh, lawyers. All right. Sweeping that aside for the moment, uh, I mentioned on uh, yesterday's show that uh, countries around the world have been issuing Travelers warnings of late to those planning to travel to the United States, including people in New Zealand, Canada, Australia, the UK, France, Venezuela, Uruguay, for example, urging their citizens to stay diligent when visiting America. New Zealand's current travel advisory, for example, um, the government there attributes their warning to the threat of terrorism, advising travelers to Uh, exercise increased caution. The U.S. remains a target of terrorist interest from both international terror groups and domestic-based extremists, New Zealand warns. Oh, they uh, warn that individuals or groups may target the U.S. through terroristic acts in areas where tourists frequent. Canada, the Canadian government, mentions the high rate of firearm possession in the U.S. and that it is, quote, legal in many states for citizens to openly carry firearms in public. Due to increased mass shootings, Canada advises tourists to, quote, familiarize themselves with how to respond to an active shooter situation. Well, there's a nice ad for the U.S. Come and visit, but be prepared to run, hide and fight. Because lots of guns there, eh? Eh? Like Canada, Australia warns its citizens that violent and gun-related crimes are much more common in the U.S. The country also lists the possibility of an impending terrorist attack. But other than that, enjoy yourself, mates. The U.K. government advises its residents to stay vigilant when traveling to the States. They list possible occurrences of mass shootings and terrorist attacks, but claim that those are rare occurrences with tourists. Though they do suggest individuals read the guidance on responding to an active shooter. You know, just something to keep in mind when you're traveling across the ponds. Cheerio.
0: Yeah, make sure you don't lose your passport or your wallet. And, oh, by the way, learn how to respond to a mass
1: shooting. South American countries, Venezuela and Uruguay have had travel warnings issued against the U.S. since 2019. The, quote, proliferation of acts of violence and indiscriminate hate crimes, unquote, was the reason that Venezuela recommended citizens postpone travel to the U.S. Uruguay's Ministry of Foreign Affairs urged travelers to take extreme precautions against the same hate crimes and increased firearm violence well land of the free home of the brave seems to have a whole new meeting around the world of late i guess yesterday i also noted that an hour or two before showtime when i checked in with the gun violence archive database of mass shootings which are uh, defined by the Gun Violence Archive as shootings that kill or injure four or more people, not including the shooter. I mentioned that the number of such mass shootings so far this year before Showtime yesterday in 2023 had been about 202 that on the 128th day of the year yesterday. So that was nearly two mass shootings a day. Well, Today, or at least this morning when I checked last on the 129th day of the year, that number was up to 208 mass shootings in the U.S. So another six mass shootings in the U.S. added to the database that I'm sure you did not even hear about since the same time yesterday. And of course, since then, we've been told by leaders in the Republican Party of Mass Murder, leaders like Texas Governor Greg Abbott, that all of this has, uh, all of these shootings in Texas and everywhere else, I guess, has nothing to do with the number of easy, uh, number and easy availability of weapons of war to anybody in the U.S. who wants one, or two, or two dozen. No, it's not about that. It's it's all about, instead, mental health
2: Uh, people want a quick solution the long-term solution here uh, is to address the mental health issue Uh, and so one thing that we can observe uh, very easily uh, and that is there has been a dramatic increase in the amount of anger and violence uh, that's taking place in America and what Texas is doing uh, in a big-time way Uh, We are working to address uh, that anger and violence by going Mm -hmm. to its root cause, uh, which is addressing uh, the mental health problems behind Mm -hmm. it.
1: Mm -hmm. That's what they're taking care of in Texas. They're going to the root cause. Never mind those guns that are able to kill dozens of people in a matter of minutes. The root cause is the anger. Also, I think later in the day he talked about, for some reason, this country has become wildly divided. He doesn't know why. (laughs) But uh, it's wildly divided. Apparently, this is making people angry due to their mental health problems. That from a Republican governor who has presided over one mass shooting over another. Many of them carried out by far-right extremists echoing the exact same political position as, yes, Republicans like Governor Greg Abbott when it comes to what he and others like him on Fox News and elsewhere, day after day, falsely and dangerously describe as an invasion of the United States by foreigners. Foreigners, by the way, who are warned before they come here. Hey, it's a dangerous place. You may you may not want to go there after all. But listen, if if you are being told that your country is being invaded day after day, hour after hour, well, you better fight back against those invaders, right? And if you only believe the news outlets that are telling you you are being invaded, it's almost your duty to stand up for your country and stop the invasion. And when you do stand up against it, well, we'll just chalk it up to mental health. Why are people so angry these days? Why are we so divided? And yes, that's also from a governor who has cut hundreds of millions of dollars in, wait for it, mental health care for Texas residents from a political party that continues to fight to take away mental health care from as many Americans as they possibly can while making guns easier to purchase, even for those diagnosed with mental illness. Yes, that was one of the first acts uh, that uh, that Donald Trump signed After taking office to make it easier for people judged to have mental illnesses to get their hands on weapons, because it's an outrage if they don't. If their position on all of this, on mental health and guns, sounds incoherent, that would be because it is. It, like their position on fossil fuels, is predicated only on the notion of lining their campaign coffers with money from corporate interests, whether it's the weapons industry or the fossil fuel industry, etc., in order to try and win elections. That's it, no matter how many people, their own constituents end up being killed in the bargain. They do not care. They are the party of mass murder. But it's not only the mass murders uh, that we need to worry about when it comes to guns, the ones you the high profile shootings that take over cable news for a few hours every few days. With anywhere from 30 to 70,000 gun deaths a year in the United States, you know, there's more of that than any of us in the media can possibly keep track of, much less cover at this point. According to the officials at the uh, uh, CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2020, there were 45,222 firearm-related deaths in the U.S. That's about 124 people dying from a firearm-related injury each and every day, according to the CDC. That same year, 2020, gun-related injuries were among the leading cause of death in People ages 1 to 44 in the U.S., according to the CDC. But, uh, yeah, it's not only mass shootings. Uh, Just one example for the moment, a Louisiana man now faces aggravated assault and battery charges after seeing a, a shadow outside of his house and firing his gun in the direction of the shadow. As it turns out, he fired his gun at children who were playing hide-and-seek outside of his house. He wounded but miraculously did not kill a 14-year-old girl. According to the local sheriff's office, the girl suffered a gunshot wound to the back of the head early Sunday and was taken to a hospital with injuries that were somehow uh, not life-threatening to her. That, according to the parish Sheriff's Office, Uh, In a statement posted on social media on Monday, the 50 year old man, the shooter here, he remained in the Calcasieu Parish Correctional Center on Tuesday morning. But hey, the important thing here is he stood his ground right as Republicans have told him to do. Even if standing your ground means you have to endanger yourself by stepping outside of your house and firing randomly in the darkness at shadows. Investigators learned that several children were playing hide and seek in the Starks community in uh, Louisiana and were hiding on the neighbor's property. The, uh, the man told detectives that he got his gun when he saw shadows outside of his home and he shot at people who he saw running away, unknowingly hitting the girl, according to officials, standing his ground, right? So, uh, you know, that, the four, that this 14-year-old girl survived at all in this case after being shot in the head is nothing short of a miracle as I see it. The children who were shot and killed in Texas by a right wing Nazi enthusiast who echoed Republican Party beliefs and, in addition to Nazi tattoos, wore a patch sold by the racist Proud Boys gang on his chest. The racist Proud Boys who supported Donald Trump's attempted insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government on January 6, 2021, and who very close Donald Trump supporters like Roger Stone have hired at times to serve as personal security there are of course photos of Texas Governor Greg Abbott seen shaking hands with at least one of the Proud Boys who was found uh, guilty this past week for sedition one of those children who were killed in Allen, Texas over the weekend at the Outlet Mall uh, had her face literally shot off by the shooter sporting the uh, weapon of choice for mass murderers. That would be an AR-15, a military-style assault rifle. But that's not the problem. It's really the mental illness, right? I'll spare you the uh, details that we learned about that particular uh, murder. I'm sorry to have had to share even that much. But these are not just, you know, incidents in a database. These are not just numbers, as horrifying as the numbers are. These are very real incidents, and the, uh, you know, Americans do not get to see the damage that these weapons cause. These are real people with real families whose lives have been forever ripped apart because Republicans, well, they want to win elections. A family of four has now become a family of one after the Korean-American's six-year-old parents uh, and younger brother were all fatally shot by the gunmen at the Texas Outlet Mall on Saturday, where eight people total were killed, not including the right-wing shooter, who was also killed. Just people going about their daily lives in schools and in parks and in grocery stores and in medical buildings, in communities, big and small, who all must now grapple with the trauma and grief that lingers when the shooting stops, if it ever does. Two sisters who were both elementary school students, one in fourth grade, one in second grade, were also killed at that outlet mall on Saturday. A 20-year-old security guard at the mall, a good guy with a gun, I guess. He was among those murdered. Another woman was a few days away from turning 28 years old. She moved to the United States from India about five years ago to pursue her master's degree from Eastern Michigan University. Another 32 year old was also shot and killed that day at that particular shooting. Three victims remain in critical condition at this hour. Allen, Texas, which is about 25 miles north of downtown Dallas. With a population of about 105,000 residents, is among the Dallas-Fort Worth area's diverse suburbs. The area saw the largest Asian-American growth rate of any major U.S. metro area, according to U.S. census figures. Those statistics show Allen's population is now about 19 percent Asian, 10 percent black, 11 percent Hispanic. It's also connected to another of Texas's recent mass shootings. In 2019, the 24-year-old assailant in the El Paso Walmart shooting, remember that one, lived in, uh, he lived in Allen before he posted a racist screed online that warned of an Hispanic invasion, you know. Just like they warn every day and night on Fox News. And then that guy from Allen, Texas, drove to El Paso, Texas and opened fire at a Walmart, killing 23 people who he believed were invading the U.S., Barely a week before Saturday's mass shooting at the Texas Mall, five people were fatally shot in Cleveland, Texas, after a neighbor asked a man to please stop firing his AR-15-style weapon in the yard because he had a baby who was trying to sleep. Well, the guy who was firing the weapon in the yard turned around and, and killed five of the people living in that house. There have also been many mass shootings in Texas since the elementary school massacre back in Uvalde a year ago. Remember that? 21 people were killed there, a lot of them children, again, with similar automatic weapons of war available to young and old alike in Texas, apparently, and pretty much everywhere across the country. But that's not a problem. It's the mental health. Apparently the mental health that, you know, problems that no one else in the world has. Only here in the U.S. for some reason. After each killing in Texas, one after another after another, at least when Abbott has been Governor Abbott has been forced to, he's chalked the matter up to mental illness while simultaneously signing laws to make guns easier to purchase and carry, because that's the solution to all these all this gun violence, I guess more guns, even though every time they make guns easier to get. Guess what? There's more and more gun violence. Abbott described Saturday's murder. uh, I love this uh, as a quote, unspeakable tragedy. But he had no trouble uh, speaking about the tragedy in Cleveland, Texas, just days earlier when he went out of his way as the victim's bodies were still warm to describe both the victims and the shooter in that case as, quote, illegal immigrants. So who cares about them? Really? They were illegal immigrants. They weren't real Americans. We don't need to worry about that. That's a tragedy we can speak of, I guess. So uh, what are you going to do? Nothing. Nothing, of course. Nothing, I guess other than make guns easier to get and blame mental health for the problem and cut hundreds of millions of dollars in funding to mental health to do something about it at the very same time. Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC over the weekend had a thought on what could be done.
2: Remember when people, people on the right, say nothing can be done about the kind of carnage we have seen this weekend, or that the problem of gun violence, of mass shootings is some mysterious, unsolvable, unresolvable problem? They're lying to you. This isn't about mental health, which every other country has problems with. It isn't drugs, which every other country struggles with. It isn't computer games, which every other country has. It's the guns. It's obviously the guns which we lead the world in. We're number one in terms of civilian gun ownership per capita. War-torn Yemen comes a distant second. We're the only country in the world where the number of civilian guns is higher than the number of civilians living in that country. So when you recognize the undeniable reality that it's the guns, then you can also recognize that one group of people, the Republican Party and their backers over at the NRA and Fox, one group of people is responsible politically and morally for these ongoing gun massacres, the ongoing killing of our kids. Let's stop saying Congress must act and start saying the Republican Party must act. Let's stop treating the GOP as the party of law and order and treat them more accurately as the party of gun violence, of school shootings, of mall massacres and let's work to ban assault weapons right now for god's sake ban the damn ar-15
1: yes for god's sake ban the damn ar-15s uh that would be a start we've done it before it ain't a big problem we've done it at the federal level from 1994 to 2004 we had a federal assault weapon uh, assault weapons ban and it was never found to have been unconstitutional even though it was used for 10 years it was in place though it did prevent the explosion in mass killings that we have seen since the Republican Party under George W. Bush allowed that federal assault weapons ban to expire back in 2004. But if the GOP terrorists will not allow that, despite its popularity among the American people, who are hugely in favor, including Republican voters, of, uh, of, of uh, banning the sale of AR-15s. Well, maybe we could just close the background check loophole, pretty please. The, pretty much the lowest hanging fruit in this matter. The NRA used to even be in favor of it. The American people are wildly in favor of that. On Monday, CNN reported that of the multiple weapons recovered that were owned by the suspect in the Allen, Texas shooting, all of them were purchased legally and most via private sellers. What does that mean? Well, it means that they didn't have to the the buyer did not have to go through a federal background check in order to make the purchase. This is a loophole in federal law. It's been around for many years and Republicans have refused to close it making such background check-free purchases of deadly weapons of war perfectly legal in Texas. And, well, the terrorists remain grateful for that. Yesterday on this program with uh, Mueller, she wrote Alison Gill, we discussed the sentencing memo that was submitted to the court by the U.S. Department of Justice for the members of the uh, far-right Oath Keepers, Militia group uh, who were found guilty a few months back for c- seditious conspiracy and other federal felonies that they committed on January 6, 2021, on behalf of Donald Trump and the Republican Party's attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election from the American people. And the DOJ, in their sentencing memo, while throwing the book at the right wing conspirators, actually increased the penalties that they were seeking based on what is called an upward departure from the sentencing guidelines due to a terrorism enhancement to those crimes. So they're actually able to ask for a larger penalty because it wasn't just the crimes that they committed. They also committed them in the name of terrorism. I wish mass murder and insurrection to steal an election were the only acts of, yes, terrorism now being carried out by the Republican Party, but they are not. Along with uh, all of the gun crimes, all of the insurrection, the Republican Party is also in the middle of attempting economic terrorism against the United States and against the world as they threaten to destroy the nation and the world's economy yet again for political gain because they think it will somehow Help them win elections. So, yeah, they are not only the party of mass murder. The Republican Party is also the party of domestic terrorism. As Simon Rosenberg, a recent guest on this program and one of the very few to accurately predict that Democrats would do much better than Many Republicans and therefore the mainstream corporate media had predicted they would do in last year's midterm elections. Simon Rosenberg tweeted out over the weekend in response to really all of the latest news, quote, We have somehow normalized savage gun violence and mass killings, medieval abortion restrictions, an insurrection against the United States and GOP's use of financial Armageddon as a negotiating tactic, something that even Donald Trump condemned as too dangerous.
2: I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. Uh, when I first came into office, I asked about the debt ceiling and I understand debt ceilings and I certainly understand a, uh, the, the highest rated credit ever in history and a debt ceiling. And I said, I remember to Senator Schumer and to Nancy Pelosi, would anybody ever use that to negotiate with? They said, absolutely not. That's a sacred element of our country. They can't use the debt ceiling to negotiate.
1: No, you can't do that. Unless, of course, there's a Democrat in office and then absolutely sacred. I don't remember what you're talking about. Of course you can use it to negotiate. But I thought we negotiated uh, spending during budget negotiations. No, we'll go ahead and put a gun to the head of the economy if you don't negotiate with us over the debt ceiling that even Donald Trump said when he was president would never be done. Rosenberg added to his tweet, uh, tweet, quote, if there was a terror organization operating inside the U.S., how would it look any different than what we are seeing, with regular mass shootings in public spaces and insurrection against the U.S. government, the threat of crippling the U.S. economy and global financial system, unless demands are met. And he does have a point. If it was Al-Qaeda or ISIS killing hundreds of thousands of Americans each year with semi-automatic weapons in schools and in shopping malls and in movie theaters and in churches and synagogues, While attempting to overthrow the U.S. government at the U.S. Capitol itself and taking measures that threaten to crater the U.S. and world economy, its stock markets, uh, resulting in a global financial recession or even depression and the loss of millions of American jobs. If there was a group doing that, like ISIS in our country, we would consider ourselves at war with such a group. As it turns out, we have such a group. It is the American Republican Party itself. That's not a partisan point. That's just a factual-based point, an evidence-based point. So, short of declaring war, which I hope we do not, what can we do? At least about the financial Armageddon piece of all of this. Let's take a quick break and we will come back to discuss exactly that today. In another cheery episode of the broadcast, <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. On it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right. The, uh, the, the president of the United States must do his job of both following the law and the Constitution. And to that end, sometimes it's very difficult to do both. And there may be one thing, however, that he can do if Congress fails to do their job. And that would be to ignore... The unconstitutional so-called debt ceiling law. I think it was last week I spent uh, quite a bit of time yet again describing the likely economic disasters to come with a default of the U.S. government's obligation to pay its bills for the first time in U.S. history an occurrence which would be 100% self-caused, 100% avoidable, and yes, 100% the fault of Republican economic terrorists in Congress, failing to pass a simple, really up-or-down vote on a clean bill to raise the dumb debt ceiling, as has happened nearly 80 times without incident since the 1960s. I mentioned that uh, while these things in the past have been worked out almost every single time at the last minute when there is a Republican in the White House, it's not even been an issue. They did did it three times. They raised the debt ceiling uh, or voted to ignore it three different times when Trump was in office and as he was increasing both the debt and the deficit by increasing spending and cutting taxes, cutting revenue, money coming into the government from corporations and the wealthy. This time around, with no small number of Republicans now in the U.S. House, who now actually seem willing, even eager, to crash the entire U.S. and world economy, this time while President Biden is right to not negotiate with economic terrorists holding the U.S. and world economy hostage to their pretend concern about government spending, out of control government spending, Well, President Biden, as I noted, damned well better have a plan B in place for what to do if these dangerous Republican terrorists in the U.S. House call his bluff and refuse to pass a clean debt ceiling bill, crashing our economy and the stock market and millions of jobs lost in the bargain. I sure hope Joe Biden has a plan B. I sure hope he sticks to his guns and doesn't negotiate with the terrorists, but I hope he's got a backup plan. The uh, GOP terrorists in the House believe that they have got a weapon. They think this is one of their only weapons, in fact, against the White House, and they damn well may be planning to use it this time. They damn well may be planning to, yes, shoot the hostage. So the White House, while sticking to their guns and refusing to to negotiate on spending that has already been approved by Republican and Democratic Congresses and presidents alike, well, he better have a backup plan to use in response to these nihilistic terrorists who now control the House Republican Caucus. And uh, while I sure hope they do, um, the, the, the plans of the White House are unclear at best about what they will do in that eventuality. But we are now beginning to see, I think, or maybe I just hope, the outlines of a plan. Last week, The New York Times reported a standoff between House Republicans and President Biden over raising the nation's borrowing limit has administration officials debating what to do if the government runs out of cash to pay its bills, including one option that previous administrations had deemed unthinkable. That option is effectively a constitutional challenge to the legality, or in this case, constitutionality, of the debt limit law itself. Now, if you haven't brushed up on your U.S. Constitution lately, this year may be a very good year to review the 14th Amendment.
0: For a lot of reasons. A lot of
1: reasons, specifically to... Two different provisions in the 14th Amendment. Yep. One section of the post-Civil War Amendment, Section 3, we've discussed quite a bit in recent years on this show. That's the provision that disqualifies from office anyone who, quote, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the U.S. or any state, quote, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. They would be barred from office, That's a useful one to keep in mind. Uh, For example, it could bar Donald Trump from qualifying to hold future office after being sworn in as president back in 2016, taking the oath and then subsequently engaging in the January 6th insurrection. So I suspect we'll come back to uh, 14.3 <laughs> you think? Uh, in the months ahead. Yeah, Today, however, it's the fourth section of the 14th Amendment that is suddenly of note. The uh, section that refers to public debt. It reads, in pertinent part, The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred, shall not be questioned shall not be questioned now under the theory the government would be required by the 14th amendment to continue issuing new debt in order to pay bondholders and social security recipients and government employees and others even if congress fails to lift the limit on the uh, on how much can be borrowed before the so-called x date the X date is a term you you need to get to know, I think. Uh, we're going to hear it a lot over the next few weeks. It's used to describe the day when the US essentially runs out of borrowing authority to uh, borrow the money needed to pay its bills. Right now, the according to the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the X date could happen could be as early as June 1 or a few days thereafter if Republicans have not agreed to simply raise or ignore the silly debt limit law by then. Now, some legal scholars contend that the language in the fourth section of the 14th Amendment, the literal reading of the words in the Constitution, overrides the statutory borrowing limit law. The argument goes that since the Treasury is required to pay the bills for stuff that Congress and presidents have mandated it to pay, It would be both unlawful to not pay those things and that the borrowing limit instituted by Congress during World War One is actually in violation of the fourth section of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. And after years of presidents sort of poo-pooing the idea that the language of the amendment applying to the debt ceiling law, you know, oh, that we can't use that here. Well, Biden's White House may now arguably correctly, actually be considering that as their plan B. And I'm glad they got one when we hit the debt, If they got one, if they decide to use this, when we hit the debt ceiling on the X date, they would simply just keep borrowing as needed to pay the bills required, required to be paid by law saying that this uh, debt ceiling law is unconstitutional. We don't need to follow it, or even if we do need to follow it, we're also, we also need to follow the laws that says we have to make these payments. Top economic and legal officials at the White House, the Treasury Department, and Justice Department, according to the New York Times, have made that theory a subject of intense and yet unresolved debate in recent months. That, according to several people with, uh, familiar with the discussion, The debate is now taking on new urgency, they write, as the U.S. inches closer to default for the first time ever. Officials who support invoking the 14th Amendment and continuing to issue new debt as needed contend that the government would be exposed to lawsuits no matter what they do. If it fails to continue paying its bills after the X date, it could be sued by anyone who is not paid on time in the event of a default. Other officials have argued that the statutory borrowing limit is binding and that an attempt to ignore it would draw an immediate legal challenge that would most likely rise quickly to the Supreme Court. Either way, they're going to get sued. Yeah unless Republicans do the right thing. But I think we can rule that out right now. We'll just take that <laughs> just off the Just scratch list. that That's right off gonna, the yeah.
0: And I think it would be an interesting uh, concept, and I would rather not have to find out if the U.S. Supreme Court, the right-wingers on there, would be willing to crash the economy so that they could ignore the plain text of the Constitution and say, yeah, go ahead, uh, you know, let the Republicans win on this one. Yeah,
1: well, you may be finding that out uh, sooner yeah. rather really than rather later, not. depending on how it goes. Yeah. In the meantime, before we even get to that point, several folks are already attempting to force the issue sooner rather than later with a uh, with a lawsuit. A union of government employees on Monday has sued Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and President Joe Biden to try to stop them from complying with the law that limits the government's total debt, the debt limit, which the uh, lawsuit contends is unconstitutional. The suit filed by the National Association of Government Employees says that if Yellen abides by the debt limit once it becomes binding, possibly next month, she would have to choose which federal obligations to actually pay. Should she, for instance, pay interest payments on Treasury securities or should she pay Social Security checks to senior citizens if there's only so much money to spend? But under the Constitution, the lawsuit argues the president and Treasury secretary have no authority to decide which payments to make because the Constitution grants spending power only to Congress. And of course, Congress has already decided what to spend on what. And if they don't follow that, well, that would violate the Constitution's separation of powers. On Sunday, Janet Yellen said there were, quote, no good options for the U.S. to avoid an economic, quote, calamity if the debt ceiling is not raised. She was asked specifically by ABC's George Stephanopoulos about the fourth section of the 14th Amendment, on Sunday saying that the debt of the US shall not be questioned.
0: The 14th amendment says that full faith and credit of the United States should not be questioned and the implications of that would be if he invoked it is the United States would just continue to issue debt saying it's unconstitutional not to now the president said he's not ready to do that but it didn't seem like he took it off the table so is it still a possibility? Look, you know our priority is is to make sure that
3: Congress does its job. There is no way to protect um, our financial system and our economy other than Congress doing its job and raising the debt ceiling and enabling us to pay our bills. And we should not get to the point where we need to consider whether the president can go on uh, issuing debt. This would be a
0: constitutional crisis. But do you? But is it on the table? Is it something that could be considered? Are you saying, you just said there's no way this can be done without Congress. Is that a hard and fast position that the President will under no circumstances invoke the 14th Amendment?
3: Look, I, all I want to say is that it's Congress's job to do this. If they fail to do it, we will have an economic and financial catastrophe that will be of our own making. And um, there is no action that... President Biden uh, and the U.S. Treasury can take to prevent that uh, catastrophe.
0: I, I'm still not exactly clear on, on whether it's on the table or off the table. Is it a break glass in case of emergency option? Look, I, I don't, I don't want to
3: consider emergency options. Um, what's important is that members of Congress recognize what their responsibility is and. Um, Avert what will surely be, regardless of how it's handled, what option is used to handle it, um, an economic and financial catastrophe.
0: It sounds like you're saying you don't want to, but you may have to.
3: What to do if Congress fails to meet its responsibility? There are simply no good options. And the ones that you've listed are among the not good options.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, A, good for him pressing her the way he did, but B, uh, I think that means it's still on the table as far as I can tell.
0: Well, I think it makes sense for her not to discuss any options because that just gives Republicans some freedom to expect that Democrats are going to bail them out at the last second for their economic terrorism.
1: Fair enough. And she makes uh, the important point that even if that were to happen, we would still see the markets crashing and uh, the bond rating lowered for the U.S., which last time this happened back in 2011, even... Before we hit the X date, because of the threats by Republicans, the U.S. had its bond rating lowered. It cost us billions of dollars, and that's probably where we're headed. But it's good to know they are at least considering this option. And frankly, if they announce it in advance, maybe we will avoid all of this. For what it's worth, both uh, Janet Yellen and the administration itself got some pretty good legal firepower uh, backing on this matter over the weekend when well-respected, long-time respected Harvard Law professor and advisor to three different Democratic presidents on the 14th Amendment, Lawrence Tribe followed an, uh, filed an op-ed in the New York Times on Sunday about why he has changed his mind about the separation of powers in the 14th Amendment, noting that while he uh, disagrees with the use of the 14th Amendment in regards to the debt limit, or at least he had in the past, he's now changed his mind, writing that it still raises thorny questions, but he has, quote, come to believe that they are the wrong ones for us to be asking. The question isn't whether the president can tear up the debt limit statute to ensure that the Treasury Department can continue paying bills submitted by veterans' hospitals or military contractors or even pension funds that purchased government bonds? The question isn't whether the president can in effect become a one-person Supreme Court striking down laws that have been passed by Congress. The right question is whether Congress, after passing the spending bills that created these debts in the first place, can invoke an arbitrary dollar limit to force the president and his administration to do its bidding. Lawrence Tribe writes, there's only one right answer to that question, and it is no. And there is only one person, he says, with the power to give Congress that answer, and that is the president of the United States. Tribe writes, as a practical matter, What that means is this. Mr. Biden must tell Congress in no uncertain terms as soon as possible before it's too late to avert a financial crisis that the U.S. will pay all of its bills as they come due, even if the Treasury Department must borrow more than Congress has said that it can. The president should remind Congress and the nation, quote, I'm bound by my oath to preserve and protect the Constitution to prevent the country from defaulting on its debts for the first time in our entire history. Above all, he argues, the president should say with clarity, my duty faithfully to execute the laws extends to all the spending laws Congress has enacted, laws that bind whoever sits in this office, laws that Congress enacted without worrying about the statute capping the amount we can borrow. By taking that position, Tribe writes, the president would not be usurping Congress's lawmaking power or its power of the purse, nor would he be usurping the Supreme Court's power to say what the law is. Biden would simply be doing his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, even if doing so leaves one law, the borrowing limit first enacted in 1917, temporarily on the cutting room floor, ignoring one law. In order to uphold every other law has compelling historical precedent, writes Tribe. It's precisely what Abraham Lincoln did when he briefly overrode the habeas corpus law in 1861 to save the Union, later telling Congress, quote, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces lest that one be violated. For president to pick the lesser of two evils when no other option exists is the essence of constitutional leadership, Tribe argues, not the action of a tyrant. And there is no doubt that ignoring the debt ceiling until Congress either raises or abolishes it is a lesser evil than leaving those with lawful claims against the Treasury out in the cold. Section four of the 14th Amendment, he notes, prohibits the president from permanently stiffing our creditors, even those required to wait their turn after the Treasury runs dry. So even if Speaker McCarthy and those pulling his strings succeed in making some of those creditors wait, it would not eliminate our debts. It would merely replace them with IOUs. And that's just debt in another form, argues Larry Tribe saying, yeah, the president not only should invoke the 14th Amendment, but he should announce that he is doing it now sooner rather than later before the uh, markets get jittery and... uh and the Everything damage is, begins uh, to gets, collapse.
0: Yes, much farther uh, yep. damage indeed. Um, and he makes an excellent argument about that being a separation of powers issue, that Congress cannot, after the fact, come in and try to use a bargaining chip to force the executive branch to do something else. So that's an interesting argument.
1: Interesting indeed, uh, except for the notion that we're having this argument at, at all. all. Yes, that's true. Thanks to the terrorists, the economic terrorists in the Republican Party. All right, we got to get out. Uh, My thanks, as ever, to Desi Doyen, our producer. My thanks, as ever, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. We we hope we always make it worth your while. We certainly do try. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at brandblog.com, along with every program we have ever done in our lives. All of that (laughs) made possible to you for free. Thanks to those of you kind enough to support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Just go on over to bradblog.com, hit one of them donate buttons. There's some nice, easy ones to use right at the top. And boy, could we use uh, some new folks signing up as subscribers right around now. Thank you in advance. All right, that's it. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world.
0: You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com donate.